Nehemiah 9, verse 38, through 10, verse 31. And we're going to talk tonight about obedience by grace. Obedience by grace. Let's pray together as we get started. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, it is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. So Lord, would you hide your words now in our hearts that we may not sin against you. I have nothing to bring, um, but Father, but your word. And so Lord, would you work, would you see fit to work in and through this time in our hearts that we would treasure you above all things. Lord, we love you. We love your word. Help us now to study it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we get started tonight, again, our, that first verse, Nehemiah 9, verse 38, starts with this. It says, now because of all of this, we, were, we are making an agreement in writing. We're making an agreement in writing. So when it says, when you see that phrase as you're reading the Bible, now because of all this, it's kind of like hitting the word therefore, you know, and you want to know what's the therefore, therefore. So because of all this, what's all this, Right. Reminds me of the, that moment in Mary Poppins where the dad comes back in and all the chimney sweeps are, what's all this? What's all, I mean, so we're saying to ourselves, what's all this? You can laugh later, it's okay. All right. Um, so let's, let's go back and let's get a little bit of context over the last couple of chapters, really this section of Nehemiah chapter seven through Nehemiah chapter 10 and get, a, get our bearings on what's going on. We haven't been here in a while. So um, chapter seven, for context, we saw a hunger for the word. A hunger for the word. In chapter 7, we saw how God had cultivated a hunger for his word and for his presence among his people and the hearts of his people. They had come back to the land from captivity among the nations. They were anxious to be numbered again amongst the God's covenant people. And again, what is it that sets God's people apart from all the other nations? They are God's covenant people, the ones whom, who have heard the words of God. So they, they're desperate to be numbered amongst that group again. So chapter 7, a hunger for the word. Chapter 8, receiving the word. In chapter 8, God's people received his word and they, this hunger that had been stirring up inside them was satisfied as, as Israel assembled together as one man and asked Ezra the scribe and that phrase that I just love to hear, bring the book, right? Bring the book of the law and read it to us. And Ezra did exactly that. And they stood there as one man together and they stood there from morning to the, till noon. And he read from the book of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the scribes, and they, they came together and were teaching and helping people to get an understanding of what the law said. And as they were doing so, I love this. The, at Nehemiah chapter, uh, chapter, chapter 7, chapter 8 there says that they were, they were gathered together and they were raising their hands at the reading of the word. And they were saying, Amen. Amen. May it be so. May, may what the word says about us in God's law, may it be so. I agree with God and what he says is true. May it be so. And they were bowing low and they were worshiping with their faces to the ground at the reading of the law. At the reading of the law, friends. That's powerful. And we, and we get nervous when we feel like we're gonna have to stand for a long time, right? They're 
They're standing from, noon, from morning to noon. They're bowing with their faces to the ground in the dust and they're worshiping. And they're saying, I agree with whatever God's word says. Hmm. And then chapter 8, really through chapter 10, you see this response. Response to the word, responding to the word. Chapter 8, you see mourning and rejoicing. Uh, I think Brock talked about that with us and about how really that's interesting to see those two things together in place. But in chapter 8, you see as they begin to hear the law, they're, they're mourning with conviction. And the leaders lead them to say, no, this is good. God has declared his word to us. Let's rejoice. And they do. They, they rejoice and they celebrate and they feast. And, and they realize because they've been, they now understand the word that they haven't been keeping this festival of booths, this festival of tabernacles. Remember that was when they would build tents out of trees and things like that that were, they were laying nearby. And they would all live in these tents for a week. And they would remember how God had been faithful to them to their forefathers in the desert. How he provided manna and quail. He provided water from the rock. How their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out. How God provided everything they needed. And so they said, you know, we haven't been keeping this. Let's do it. So they rejoice. And they rejoice in this feast. And then chapter 9, we see confession Confession, the, the, after the, day, the day after this feast was over, Israel held a solemn assembly before the Lord. And in sackcloth and ashes, uh, even Corey talked about this, how the entire nation gathers together and they confess not only their personal sin, but national sin. Them saying, I may not have participated in this, but we together are guilty before the Lord. And they recount throughout the, the whole story of the Old Testament how God had been faithful and how they had been faithless. At every turn, we did not listen to what God said. We were, we were stiff-necked. We were, um, oh, what's the word? Um, but how essentially we, we disobeyed. Just like, just like the other nations didn't listen, we didn't listen. Yet God was faithful through it all. Because they understood the law of the Lord. And then I want you to see this, though. All of this was part of God's plan. All of this was God leading and guiding, restoring his people to where we are tonight. Obedience. Obedience to the word. And I want you to think about this. At what point, <laughs> at what point, really, in any of this story, has Israel done anything good in, in and of itself? None, right? Who brought them back from the nations? God did who provided everything they needed to rebuild the temple, the walls, God did. Who protected them and their, uh, from their enemies as they did so, God did. Who brought unity from within. People were taking advantage of each other and there was rampant sin even as this was happening. Who pu was purifying them? Who was unifying them? God was. It was all in response to what God's word said. It was all the Lord. And why did God do all of this? For his glory, which in a way that only God could pull off, just so happens to be for our greatest good. Don't you love how it just so happens a lot in the Bible? It's almost as if God is in charge or something. And church family, we are part of God's covenant people too. The same holds for us. God has redeemed us from our sinful rebellion against him as a gracious gift through faith. And, and so all of this, our salvation is a gift. 
right? Our, our salvation is a gift of grace. The, the faith that we, with which we believe is a gift. All of this, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that it's a gift of God, not by works so that anyone could boast. It's all a gift. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, in, him there, in whom there is no shifting shadow of change. And our salvation is one of those great gifts. So tonight, let's look back at this snapshot, this, this moment in Israel's history, and let's marvel at how clearly God is the one behind the scenes that is doing this. And as we look back, let's... Knowing that God is the ultimate author of all scripture, knowing that God recorded this way back then for us and for our good right here and right now. I mean, and can you just think about that? The fact that God intended this story with Nehemiah and these people half around, halfway around the world thousands of years ago, he intended it for your good right here. God himself is speaking to us through this story. Man, that's good. And so as we do so, let's trust God and let's thank him for how he does the same thing with us in the New Testament. He, he leads us with his word through confession and repentance to obedience. My main idea for tonight is this. God graciously leads and enables and leads us to obey his commands. So, Let's think about this moment. What was going on here? This was a moment of united obedience. It was a moment of united obedience. And we see that really in the first <laughs> 29 verses of the chapter. By God's grace, his people were agreeing together to obey him. Just look at all the people that are involved in this, in this, uh, this agreement. Again, I'm, I'm not going to read all the, ver all the names here, but you can see this. Let's, we can break that down. Of course, you have Governor Nehemiah in verse 1. He's the chief signer. Then you have the priests in verse 1 through 8, the Levites in verse 9, the brothers of the Levites in verses 10 through 13, the leaders of the people in verses 14 through 27. And then kind of in this big blanket phrase here, blanket statement in verse 28, the rest of the nation, even though they're not signers, they are entering into this agreement too. This is nothing short of incredible. The scale on which all these people have gone through desiring the word, they've, they've heard the word, they've confessed, they've repented, they've re mourned, they've rejoiced, and now they're agreeing together to obey the Lord. This is nothing short of the work of God. And if, but if you, I want you to see this though. Um, in verse 28, Nehemiah does hint that maybe not everybody is, assigned or is, is consenting to this. You see this here, that phrase, all those who had knowledge and understanding. So still, as fractured as God's people had been for so long, to have nearly the entire, this entire nation on the same page to follow the Lord and to obey him is nothing short of a miracle. Church, my family and I have been so blessed to be a part of you over these first two years. There's a unity and a passion for God's word here amongst you that is hard to find in other places. But it's a new year and there's more work to be done, isn't there? So may it be that God, as we go into this year of grow, may God cause us to grow up, to pardon the pun, right? That he would cause us to grow up, to make us more like his precious son in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. 
because he alone can do it. And praise God, he wants to. He desires that in his people. And as things inevitably won't go the way exactly the way that we want them to this year, it's a great, let's take that as a gracious opportunity in the Lord to evaluate where our, where our expectations are, where our, our hope is. Is our hope in, in the Lord and in his plan that will always succeed? Or is it in our feeble plans and expectations? So when things don't measure up perfectly and your heart's kind of left stinging by that this year at some point, where's your hope? Oh, I pray it's in Christ. So first we saw this was a moment of united obedience. Second, we see this is a moment of specific obedience. Specific obedience. You know, obedience by its nature must be to something or someone specific. A child can't simultaneously obey her dad calling from one side of the house to go brush her teeth and get dressed for bed. And at the same time, obey her mom calling from the other side of the house telling her to pick up her toys. You can't serve two masters, can you? In the same way, God has graciously brought Israel to the point where they see their desires, their their priority for obedience is not on the Lord. It was on themselves. It was on their own selfish, sinful desires. Wanting to be like the nations, wanting to worship their gods, wanting to... um, play nice-nice with all the, other, all the other kingdoms and barter and do all these different things, hoping that they can kind of scratch out their own existence. And in a sense, they, their obedience had shifted. And so now God in his grace is bringing them back on track and showing them the true lay of the land and where their allegiance needs to lie. <clears throat> and we see that they had already experienced some of this heart change because they, they had such an incredible desire in chapter, chapter eight to go and, and to fully as one man to go through the Feast of Booths, right? We saw that it, it hadn't been done like that since, since the days of Joshua, since the days of David. So this was something that was, this was something that you already see an example of this and now it's going even further on this written document with eyes toward future obedience, and we see, I want you to see this here, that all this obedience is focused on the Mosaic law. Verse 29 says this, um, Mose- uh, Nehemiah said that all the people are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and statutes. This is the law that God gave us through Moses, namely uh, the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20. Israel's focus was on obeying God's commands now. And he had convicted them about specific ways, specific laws that they had been habitually breaking. So let's look at a couple of those. First, I want you to see how they had broken the law in connection to the influence of the nations. The influence of the nations. Where's that, Justin? Let's look in verse 30. Thank you. Good question. Good questions in here tonight. They had been giving away their daughters to foreigners in marriage, and they had been taking foreign wives for their sons. God had commanded them not to do so back in Exodus chapter 34. So let's look at that. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, starting with verse 12. God commands them saying this, watch yourself that you make no commandment with the, or that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim, 
For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they would play the harlot with their gods and and sacrifice to their gods. And then someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters might play the harlot with their gods. And cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So this is why I put it this way, that it's in terms of the influence of the nations. This is not a case of racism. This is one of those situations where people look at the Old Testament and they say, look at that, reinforced, religiously reinforced racism. Is that the kind of religion you want to be a part of? And the problem is they're not reading the Bible when they say that. They're not reading it in context. So what does that mean? It's not racism. It's not nationalism. Instead, it's about influence. Even in the command, God makes his intentions clear. He's preserving the holiness of his people. He's preserving that holiness, that kingdom, that line, because someone is coming. This is God's plan to, to safeguard salvation for you and for me as well. One uh, commentator wrote it this way. F. Charles Fincham said this. Marriages with foreigners, especially with those foreigners, uh, especially when those foreigners were in an important position at, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, were fraught with problems for the Jews. The influence of a foreign mother with her connection to another religion on her children would ruin the pure religion of the Lord and would create a syncretistic religion running contrary to everything in the Jewish faith. In the end, it was a question of preservation of their identity, their religious identity. We know, in fact, that God loves the Gentiles. It's not about God being against the Gentiles because here we sit, Gentiles in Christ. We've been grafted in, Romans 9 and 10 says us. We're part of Israel now, the the New Testament church. And we know even the command from Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says this, do not be bound together with, not with foreigners, but with unbelievers. Unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or fellowship, what fellowship has light with darkness? The line is not drawn at race, but it's drawn at trusting at Christ. Marrying someone who doesn't know the Lord doesn't make it impossible to walk with Christ, but it does make it harder. It means that someone so close to you with so much influence on you and your children is completely opposed to everything you stand for on a worldview level. You may say, well, but Justin, he's such a great guy. Justin, she's such a sweet girl. Congratulations, but it, all right. does that mean that then that you're, you're settling for someone who has a form of godliness, but denies the very one that empowers true godliness? Young people, please hear me. And I'm so thankful for, for testimonies even in this room or people that came to know Christ after being married. Many cases because of the testimony of the one that they were, that they were married to. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Praise God for that. But God's word is clear. You should know that going in. And if you are currently right now married to an unbeliever, 
Don't seek to be unbound, just like the New Testament says. Seek to live, and as long as that person is consenting to stay there and to live with you, be there with them. Show them Christ. Show them the love of Christ through you. And your church family loves you and wants to equip you to walk in that. And friends, the thing is, this is, this is, because this is an influence issue and not just a marriage issue, this is not just about marriage, it's about daily life. Verse 31 wasn't about doing, wasn't against doing business with unbelievers. It was about doing business with unbelievers on the Sabbath day, which caused you to disobey the Lord in doing so. There's nothing wrong with having friendships and connections with people outside the church. In fact, the New Testament seems to push us toward it. But the question is this, what kind of influence, what kind of influence do those relationships, those people have on us? What level, do, what level of influence does that, do those people have on us? <clears throat> if we're going to be in the world, but not of it, we need to carefully curate the influence, who has influence over us and to what degree they have influence over us. You know, the scroll of social media, this right here, everybody knows this motion, right? It seems, it has this effect of being the great mediator, or not the great mediator, but the, the great equalizer. The more that I scroll, the more that all the posts seem to blend together, and nothing really seems to be more important than the other. And the more that I scroll, the more that I'm, I'm kind of likely to to give in, to let in, let influence in from whatever is there. That's dangerous. <clears throat> the thing is, each post is not only a window into someone's worldview, but each post is also a hook to invite you to in, to join that person in their worldview. So be careful. You do control who you follow on Facebook and Twitter and all these other things. You do control that. Doesn't mean that you that you can't go to an unbeliever's page or see a post or something like that, but you need to see that for what it is. We need to, we need to care, more carefully curate that. Parents and grandparents, places like YouTube are not nearly as safe as we think they are, and they're changing rapidly. Managing media for our church has shown me that YouTube is changing drastically and fast. Because of different laws that have come up, YouTube, a lot of the, the overwhelming majority of YouTube channels are trying to age up their content so as not to be seen as for children because for children no longer makes money on YouTube. So be careful. Things that used to be seen as safe, and they may not have been safe anyway, are no longer safe for sure. So parents, that means grandparents, that means that not only do we need to know what our children are watching and listening to, we need to have a decisive role in what they watch and what they listen to. And if you're struggling with that, um, how, do I, how do I stay ahead? I mean, isn't that, isn't that difficult, right? How do I stay ahead? Of, and how do I even just keep up with what my kids are, have access to with tablets and, and phones and all these different things? Let's walk this out together. The biggest lie that we could ever believe, and I'm sorry that I'm on a tangent here, but the biggest lie that we could believe is that that we're the only family that struggles with this. I don't want to admit that I don't know how to manage media for my children. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're, we're a community. We're a family. We help each other with that. And so let's talk about that together. Don't be afraid to say that. 
And at the same time, don't be afraid to not be your, your kid's friend because you're curating what they watch. Because in the end, once, once something's introduced into their worldview, it's there. And there's no taking it back. And so let's, let's guard our families. Let's be, let's be careful about who has influence and how much influence they have. So we see in this agreement, in Israel was emphasizing specific, specific obedience to God's law about the influence of the nations. And next one, keeping the Sabbath. Here we go. <clears throat> Verse 31, they pledged to keep the Sabbath by no longer outsourcing, outsourcing their Sabbath work to the nations by buying produce on the Sabbath. Now this could get kind of sticky here. And they also see this, they also pledged to honor not just the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. Once every seven years, no planting crops on the land. This is actually one of the key things that, that led to them going to the, being sent out to the nations anyway, was that they, they never kept the Sabbath year. There was no jubilee. So I want you to see this. Not only did they not plant, were they not supposed to plant crops on the, on the Sabbath year, but they were supposed to forgive all debt. That sounds really good if you have debt, right? That sounds terrifying if someone owes you money, right? And I want you to see though, all of these are kind of like arrows at the heart of the people because you, what we have here is a bunch of people that are looking to, their, to themselves and to their things for Sabbath rest. You have questions as small as where will we get food tomorrow to where will we have food for the entire next year? And even how am I supposed to provide for my family if I provide rest for my neighbor by forgiving their debt? Ladies and gentlemen, who are you looking to for rest? Are you trying to find your rest and your ability to strive and scheme and work all these things out? Is your idea of rest coming from a 401k? Is your idea of rest coming from uh, whatever that may be? Ladies and gentlemen, the, God is not only the right one to look to for rest, he's the only one. Only God can, it can be sufficient to offer true and lasting rest. Church family, who, what are you clinging to that only God can carry? Are you striving in self when you could be resting in him? And so I want you to see that that's really the heart of this. It's not in the, under the New Testament, under the, under the new covenant. It's not so much, are you doing this little thing and this little thing and this little thing, this little thing, but where are you looking for your rest? And that will, that will guide your, your actions. I also want you to see though the why of this specific obedience. The Why? <clears throat> they addressed these specific laws. These things were included in this document that they all signed and agreed to because now they understood the law. These were specific things because God had revealed to them specific things. God had, in God's, in God's grace, people had been set aside to teach and to help them understand the law. Do you know where I'm going with this? Church family, 
How much of God's word do we already understand, yet we refuse to obey? We don't have to go looking for a new thing. We probably have enough right here and right here that we already know that we're not obeying. How much by God's grace has been taught and explained to us over the years that, either, that we either neglectfully or willfully refuse to submit to. And I don't say that to shame you. Please hear me. I say that to stir you up to action. Because the, the good news is that, praise God, your failure, my failure to obey things that we already know has already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. That's not our weight to carry. All we have to do is to, is to, is to, to lay that down at, to, at his feet. And I'm telling you, even if, if something specific has popped in your head right now, something that you know that you're not obeying and that you haven't confessed to him, it doesn't bother me in the slightest if you take some time right now and in the quiet of your heart, confess that to him because he desires you to be free of it. He desires you to be free of it. Repent of that. Ask him to focus your mind and your heart on him as the one who will enable you to obey and, and please hear this, Not only will he enable you, but he is the true and better replacement for the thing that you fear you will lose if you obey. Can I say that again? Not only does he enable you to obey, but trust him as the true and better replacement for the very thing that you fear you will lose if you you obey him. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's true. And so as we've, as we've asked tonight, uh, from this text, we've asked, how can, the, how can we see here that God is at work, that this is the Lord behind this kind of obedience? And we see that, that it was a moment of united obedience. We see that it was a moment of specific obedience. And when you see those two aspects together, really in this one moment, to me, it's, con- it's incredibly telling that this is the Lord. I've never seen anything like this. And yet, as we close, I want you to see that this was a moment of temporary obedience. It was a moment of temporary obedience. Back in verse 29, they said that they had written this agreement in the form of an oath and a curse. An oath meaning, I give my word that I will abide by this agreement and a curse that may such and such happen to me should I not obey, should I not abide by this agreement. So needless to say, they were serious about obedience here. And in this moment, they were absolutely focused and passionate about obeying the Lord, specifically in, this, in these areas they knew that they had disobeyed in. But as soon as chapter 13, we see that marriage is a problem again in Jerusalem. The influence of the nations has somehow survived or crept back in and becoming an even worse problem. And by the time of Jesus, he charges the Pharisees with this in John 7, 19. He says, did, Moses give you, did not Moses give you the law? And yet, none of you, Pharisees, teachers of the law, none of you carries out the law. So Israel before the exile couldn't keep the law. Israel after the exile couldn't keep the law. The New Testament church can't keep the law. We're no different, are we? But praise God. Jesus Christ 
can and did keep the law. He did. And, and his law keeping, his obedience, his righteousness, he has credited to us by faith if we're trusting in him. Titus 2 says this, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny, un, or deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the uh, blessed hope and, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Yes, praise God that Jesus came to, to redeem us, to purify us for himself. He delights in you being a part of a people for his possession. He's delight, he delights in you, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And praise God, because we're, we're in him, we are positionally obedient that's what justification is, right? We've been declared positionally righteous before him in our position. And praise God, in, in our sanctification, he is making us day by day, in the moment by moment, he's making us personally righteous, personally obedient. And we, and we may not even see because it's moving so slow, but it's happening. Because he's promised that what he began in you, he will bring through to completion in the day that he returns. And so we obey. Because we saw, as we saw tonight, as we started out, that God graciously enables and leads us to obey his commands. And by his grace, we obey. Not so that, right? Not so that victory will be ours someday. But we obey because victory has been made ours in Christ already. Because in the gospel, the God of the Bible, the, the just and gracious creator of all things looked upon hopelessly sinful people like us. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the God man, to bear his wrath against our sin on the cross and to display his power over death and his resurrection so that all who turn from their sin and from themselves and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation will be reconciled to God forever. They will live to please him and they will experience the promise of eternal life, enjoying God forever in heaven. And so as we obey, we obey longing for that day when our blessed hope appears and we get to be with him in his place around his throne where even though this moment in, in Israel's history was a fleeting moment, it was a moment of temporary obedience, that day, <laughs> that day, there will be total obedience. There will be no more sin to confess. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow and weeping and confession except confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you long for that day? Friend, do you know this blessed, glorious hope of Jesus Christ? Oh, I pray that you do. And if not, what prevents you from doing that tonight? Church family, are you trusting him 
as the one who enables and leads you to obey him for his glory and for your ultimate good? Oh, I pray that you are. And if not, what prevents you from confessing those things to him tonight? And talking to somebody, we're gonna be up here. We would love to talk with you and to help you and encourage you so that we can do this together. Trusting the Lord and encouraging, holding one another accountable. Not so that we can keep tabs on each other, but that he would be glorified in us because he is worthy. Let's pray together.